And now, the Andy Greenwald Podcast. Andy, Andy. Hello, my name is Andy Greenwald. This is my podcast, Great Day Here in New York City, where the resurgent Mets have fueled my guest into this room. He is a writer and director, and his TNT series, Public Morals, wraps up its first season tonight. Tonight. Tuesday, uh, October 20th. I'm getting the dates yes. right. Edward Burns, welcome. Hey. Thank you. Thank you for having me. As I told you before, huge fan of the podcast for a while, so thank you for having me. That is very nice of you to say. And I realize I, on paper you are Edward. You introduce yourself as Eddie. Is that okay? Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. I, I can I, yeah, refer yeah, to you yeah, as yeah. Eddie. Yes, that's, yes, yes. Please that, do. That's not overly familiar? No, not at all. Not at all. Was there a moment early on in your career where you had to make that choice? Who, I did. Who you would be on the marquee versus who you are uh, Yeah, for some reason I didn't think I should go as Eddie for you know i just thought you know like use your 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 full formal name but then yeah um a lot of people call me ed too so i thought oh do i go by ed burns mm. but then i couldn't because there was an actor in the 50s called ed cookie burns oh who was on a television show called 77 sunset strip is that your nickname as well cookie <laughs> it's funny like if to this day if i meet someone who is <laughs> from that generation somebody in their yeah. 70s there's this line, "Kooky, get your comb," oh. which they will still say to me. Wow! So yeah. you had to. I had I, with that. my entire childhood. I heard a lot of that. <laughs> and there's also Ed Burns, who works with David Simon, who apparently on the wire on the and, first season, yeah. he was Ed, he was Edward Burns, yes, and he had to change it to Ed. That's right, because I was already Edward. You bigfooted him uh, on that, uh, yes, You're yeah, like, but I was bigfooted by Ed Kooky Burns, so <laughs> it's like. It, it's, it happens to everybody, you know? Fair enough. All right, so now that we know what to call you, um, I owe you an apology, I feel, because <laughs> you have been very nice about the podcast. Um, I believe TNT has been nice in helping sponsor one of our podcasts here. For yeah, the yeah, show. yeah, yeah. And I was late to appreciate it. Mm. I was late to watch it. I know you've probably been reading this too, this too much TV thing. Yep, yep. I am, I've heard you guys talk about I am victim 1A, even though <laughs> it's essentially a victimless crime. Um, and when I finally had time to get around to Public Morals, I really enjoyed it oh, a cool. lot. Thank you. It, is, it was so nice to watch a show that was so smartly realized and developed, but pleasurable to watch. Yeah. You were just telling a story. Well, the, the goal was, you know, I mean, we kind of, my producing partner and I, Aaron Lubin, keeps saying, you know, we, we, we worship at the altar of good storytelling yes. and entertaining the audience. And when you're dealing with, you know, gangsters especially, there is a tendency to go dark, yeah. uh, for the actors to brood, yeah. uh, for everyone to kind of uh, deliver their lines in a certain way where everything, there's a lot of heaviosity. Of course. Uh, for me, you know, I mentioned Mean Streets early on, that uh -huh. that was a film I saw as a, as a kid in high school that sort of opened my eyes up to different types of movies. Yeah. Um, and sort of Scorsese's treatment of gangsters in all those films, Goodfellas, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Casino, um, and I also thought about, uh, you know, another one of my favorite cop movies, French Connection, mm -hmm. and the relationship, um, you know, those two cops had, Roy and Gene Hackman. Mm -hmm. There was, the, the, these guys, you had a sense, enjoyed their jobs, yes. be it gangsters or cops chasing gangsters. A having also grown up in a cop family and listening to cops talk, yeah. they're breaking balls all day long, and they are funny, and they seem to love those crazy lives that they have. So yeah. I was like, I have to make sure that the, the show feels like that. And that was, and also I'm a huge Tarantino fan. So yeah. there was a bit of that working as well. But I feel like there must be some overlap between what you're saying, the way you heard cops talk about their job and the way actors talk about their job in that actors want to play. They want yeah, to have fun. Oh, yeah. They want to have scenes to chew on. They want to have costumes to wear and they want to enjoy it. And 
when I say that, I, I don't mean to suggest that, you know, that everyone's, it's not a circus, your show. Yeah. It is a serious show. But you're giving these actors, and we'll go through a couple of them because you have yeah. such great actors. We, we put together a pretty cool cast. They're having fun. And I, there was a moment, I think it's in the first or second episode, I remember watching it, and it's uh, your character and Michael Rappaport's character, and you're roughing up Kevin Corrigan's character. Yeah. Already I'm in just my, by my description. <laughs> and uh, I just freeze-framed it, and I looked at everyone's faces, and I was like, how could I not enjoy this? Because yeah. look what Corrigan is doing. Yeah. And even at the end of that scene, I think he says, I- I'm just a gambler. Yeah. Like, I'm not playing the high-stakes heaviosity here. I'm just, I'm just a gambler. Yeah. This is my life. And, and that... I was hooked from that moment. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. It, um, you know, part of it is, I think, you know, write a director, but also an actor. And I know what it's like to work with a filmmaker uh, that, put hand, that puts handcuffs on you. And yeah. then I know w- when the opposite is true. It's like when I worked with Spielberg on Private Ryan, much to all of our surprise, he kind of let you play a little bit. Hmm. Um, One wouldn't think that. He wouldn't. And and that film, you know, there's very little direction. Mm-hmm. He allowed us to change up the lines so that we could own them. And then there was, um, and we kept thinking after two weeks, he never gave us any direction. And we were sure that we were going to get fired, that he must have hated us. Finally, there was one scene where he gave us some direction. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, at lunch, we all went up to him and said, you know, like, uh, so w- what happened today? Yeah. And he said, well, today you didn't know what the hell you were doing. And then went on to sort of tell us that huh. his approach is, well, I hire guys that um, I like and that I think can do the part. And I fully expect you to come to work having already made your choices. And and you're going to present me with some exciting new ideas. So I'm not going to step on your toes after the first take. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't, yeah. I didn't see it that way. I'll give you three or four to find it and play. And then if I'm not happy with it, I'll step in. That's that moment. That talk changed the way I deal with uh, with actors. Yeah. So now I'm constantly, and you mentioned that scene with uh, Kevin. You know, there's a scene. I maybe the fourth episode with Kevin and Brian Dennehy. Mm-hmm. All right. So first of all, filmmaker. I got Kevin Corrigan. Yeah. Brian Dennehy. I mean, that's you just sit back. And I remember you need to just lead with that. TNT should have just shown those their, right. their headshots and I mean, just said, yeah, watch it. Yeah. And I mean, they're so great. I sat back. I just watched them do their thing. Brian was doing something that I didn't anticipate. You know, when I wrote the scene, I mm-hmm. thought it was one thing. He kind of played some different tones. Kevin went with this whole other idea. Yes, he was nervous, but there was a little hint of, hey, this is a great opportunity for my character. Mm-hmm. So by allowing those guys to play, and as you said, have fun, immediately I started to, that night, I started to think about Kevin's character differently. Hmm. So I went in and get, wrote a bunch of new scenes for him which I don't know if you got to the part where, where he get where something happens to him. Yes. But the setup to that with his wife and yeah. then he gives his buddy the car and a token of our appreciation. Yes. All of that came from me watching Kevin play with his character, taking it away I didn't think it was gonna go and say, Oh, that's a better version of the character than I had in my head. It's interesting because you have to work from a split perspective because as you said, you are an actor. You're also a writer, but in this case you're you are an actor and you are a director. And I wonder when you first got behind the camera, was the ten- it sounds like the tendency then was to defer to the directorial brain. Like, to, to, to you're, you have, you're in charge, you have to make this movie, and that, prior to the Spielberg conversation, caused you to maybe direct the actors a little more aggressively. Oh, I thought, you know, on, on the first couple of movies, I thought the, the, the job of the director yeah. was to be directing. <laughs> it's right After, there in the title. Yeah, the yeah. <laughs> um, and now, I, I very rarely give any direction. I mean, it's really just a little bit, oh, you know, maybe we should cut that line. Yeah. Maybe go a little faster. Can you place a little bit more emphasis on this? Um, but, you know, and it's true of, you know, the more senior guys, like Brian and Kevin. Yes. But, 
you know, you make a show in New York. You have all of these these great actors. We mentioned Kerry Bechet, who you've had on the show. Yeah. You know, we brought Kerry back in for one episode here. Yeah. Um, but I worked with Kerry on probably her first film. And the same thing was true there of the young actors. You know, they come in so excited. They have such a different appreciation yeah. for the gig yeah. that um, they're ready to play. So you don't want to step on that. And, you know, I mean, not all of them uh, can do it without sort of a little bit more direction. Right. But, you know, most of them can, you know. So let's talk about the, the scope of this project because, again, I didn't even realize until I was, you know, well, I realized after three episodes, but I made it through nine. Um, I think that this oh, so you is, didn't this see the finale. I, the only one I haven't seen is the finale. Oh, so good. we can, we can right, talk cool. up to that, but right, I am right, as good. in the dark as the audience. Yeah. Um, you wrote and directed every episode yeah. of this, and you're the star. This is this is auteur stuff that is new territory for television. You know, you alluded to it. Chris and I have talked about this a lot. There yeah. are very few cases where one person has written and directed an entire series, yeah. especially one of this length. So. Were you feeling particularly masochistic? Were you feeling particularly inspired? How did this shake out, and how did it end up at TNT? Uh, all right, so a couple of... Yeah, it's a long-winded answer. Yeah, so well, it was a long-winded question. Yeah, so all right. <laughs> it deserves it. Um, all right, so long-time passion project for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, two passion projects that I married. Uh, one is, so on the set of Private Ryan, my father, who's a retired cop, and my uncle, who was a retired cop, were visiting me on set. Mm-hmm. They talked to Stephen, and they're telling him these crazy old stories about what it was like to be a cop in New York in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Did, did they come up to Steven Spielberg and say, I got a movie for you? Is that how it started? Uh, I, I, I wouldn't surprise me if they did. <laughs> that would be definitely yeah. something my dad would do. Yeah. Um, but at lunch that day, Stephen says, you need to make a movie about those kind of guys. Yeah. So I said, I, I said, I have this idea about like an Irish-American godfather, you know, a uh, multi-generational family saga set against the cops. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Stephen said, okay, well, you should write that for DreamWorks. So I write that script for DreamWorks. It was called On the Job. We spent three years trying to get it made. Wow. And we couldn't get it made for a number of different reasons. Budget, cast, all those things mm-hmm. that you're, you're familiar with. Um, so it goes on the shelf. Then, you know, I'm a guy who made a certain type of indie film, you know, Mm -hmm. these these small, you know, romantic walk and talk movies. Mm -hmm. Part of that was, you know, you you try and get a movie like On the Job Made. Three years go by. You can't. They want you to make the movie you made before. You need to pay your mortgage or your rent or whatever it is. You say, okay, I'll go make another one. And uh, so... I had a, but I kept trying to pivot into this other genre that I've been obsessed with, mm-hmm. cops and gangsters. So I wrote a, uh, I did an adaptation of uh, William Kennedy's novel Legs mm. with uh, Bill Kennedy. Mm-hmm. We tried to get that made, couldn't get that made. I should say my family is from Hell's Kitchen, um, and I had a great grandfather who was, it appears, was definitely. Not a completely upstanding citizen. Right. What, what's the line from your show? He dabbled? He dabbled. Yeah. He dabbled, yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah, who doesn't like to dabble, right? <laughs> so he dabbled. Um, so I was always obsessed with, like, the Irish on Hell's Kitchen and that sort of gangster history of that neighborhood. Um, so I wrote two more period gangster movies, one a turn-of-the-century one and one set uh, in the 70s. Uh, those three films couldn't get them made. Oh, my God. So each time you try and go, you can't get them made, go make another rom-com. I go then and I act for TNT in Frank Darabont's show Mob City. Right. Uh, I get killed at the end of that. And um, the folks at TNT, uh, I think you guys even made it, joked about this kind of thing at some point. Like if you're an actor who shows up on time and knows your line, they're happy to see you. Like they're, like, they're excited by that That's, notion. They must be, yeah. Yeah. So they're like, 
Um, would you ever want to do your own show for us? I had not given any thought to TV. Um, I went home for the summer, and I started to think, well, if I was going to build out a TV show, what would it be? Mm-hmm. I look at the stack of scripts on my on my shelf. I got my cop saga and these three gangster movies. And I thought, well, why don't why don't I, you know? And it's also tapped into Mad Men, which is probably my number one show. Yeah. You know, Mad Men and Sopranos kind of go back and forth for me. It's I'm kind right of like Godfather One and Two, right? Yeah, depends um, on depends on the mood. Yeah. The thing that I loved about both shows was, you know, the the focus on family, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 those relationships that those those uh, both those two patriarchs had mm-hmm. with those families. So I knew I wanted to to do a family saga. So I thought, well, why don't I do two families? I'll set it in Hell's Kitchen. I'll have the one family, the the Irish cop family. The other family will be the Irish gangster family. Mm-hmm. I'll connect them by marriage, and go from there. So then I then I have that idea. All right. Do you want to hear the whole thing, how we pitched it and all that? Or? Well, here's what I want to ask you. Coming off of what you just said, you said you had not given much thought to television. Yeah. I feel like in your answer was a good reason to go to television, which was you keep writing these scripts that are your passion yeah. projects, and then they go on this shelf of frustration. Yeah. And this is the thing that I was told early on, and I've seen it come past now over the last few years on The Beat, which is, you know, TV gets made. That's the difference yeah. between movies and TV. Yeah. Movies have all the best intentions in the world and all the talent, but it's, you know, it's, it's about budget. It's about perfectionism. It's about the whims of the industry at any given moment. TV, like journalism, you just you, yeah. you, you got to get the paper out in the morning and it gets made. And that had to have been hugely rewarding. A big time. And, and a part of that, the, the, my excitement to go into TV was, you know, uh, reading that book, Difficult Men. Yeah. Hearing about how much independence all of those showrunners had. Right. There was almost no interference. Um, Then, you know, Soderbergh does The Nick. Yeah. And I'm looking at that and I'm like, oh, well, clearly, you know, uh, the kind of uh, character-driven stuff I like, you don't find in the theaters anymore. Yeah. You know, the indie film thing kind of took that over for a while. Mm -hmm. But now that audience and those storytellers are pivoting towards television and have mm-hmm. been for, you know, 10, 15 years. That's right. So just, it's kind of seemed like a no-brainer. The minute, you know, it's like one of those things when the minute they said it to me, I was like, oh yeah, of course. Why Why didn't I think of this 10 years ago? But now, did anyone at any point during this development say to you, but no one writes and directs 10 episodes Oh themselves. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they did. Um, and there was talk about, you know, putting together a writer's room. Right. And... I, I, you know, I'm an, I'm I'm lucky as someone who writes. I actually like writing. It, it's never a chore. You'll have to tell me about that later because <laughs> oh my god, really? There's a reason why I do a podcast yeah. whenever I can because okay. it's not writing. Yeah, um, I just got lucky. I mean, I, I enjoy the time. It's my therapy. I can just go off into wow. you know their world and four hours go by like that. Um, that's not to say the, the four hour, that there's quality work in there. No, but you, you know, enjoy the process. I enjoy the process. So I was like, I, plus I had mapped out, you know, as, as I was writing the pilot, I had all of this research that I had done from those four other projects that I mentioned. Um, and, you know, drawing from a hundred years worth of uh, sort of New York crime um, and cop stories. Mm-hmm. So when I built out my Bible, it was about 500 pages long wow. of just characters, incident um, stories that I might want to explore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I, I just, this is the genre that I love. So I was yeah. like, well, let me try. Um, uh, let me see if I can, you know, let me get halfway through the season and then we'll determine whether or not we should hire a writer's room. Mm-hmm. So I sat down and instead of writing 10 episodes, I, I tried to write a novel. So I said, all right, I kind of know where my five big storylines will go. Um, so let me just sit down 
and try and get that thing done. And I'll, I, I knew that television scripts should be around 45 to 50 pages long. I just for, see you Googling this in between. Uh, yeah, yeah no, that's what it was. You know, I mean, we were lucky. We had, you know, so Steven Spielberg became an executive producer right. on the show. So we did have Amblin TV to kind of help me. And you with. remembered that conversation, right? You weren't like, Steven, you don't remember promising oh, no, yeah, this? Yeah. And he's like, oh, this is awkward. <laughs> what? Really? Yeah. He knew. Uh, he knew. Okay. Um, so, uh, so I kind of knew, all right, at 45 pages, I have to, uh, as you know, and I do outline. So I kind mm-hmm. of outlined a lot of it. And I knew, you know, like any good crime novel, when you come to the end of that chapter, mm-hmm. you better end it with a scene that makes the audience want to turn that page right. and, and get on with it. So that was sort of my approach. Now, that said, what was interesting, once I was able to build out that beast, which mm-hmm. is, it was, you know, it was big, not all of it was great, um, but, you know, I could see that a lot of the, um, the storylines were working. And then there were others where I could just, that were more, let's say, episodic. Mm-hmm. And I could then start to shift some of those along because, oh, wait, the Shea character, I haven't seen him in five episodes. Right. I must have forgotten about him. Let me slide him forward. Right. And there was that kind of thing. Um, and then I kind of – then I went in and did the cleanup work. Mm-hmm. And when I had the first four or five that I felt were in really good shape, that's when I presented those to DreamWorks. And then DreamWorks gave those to TNT and with Steven's stamp of approval – I was like, okay, we think Eddie can do the whole, he can write the whole season. It's really interesting to watch because, you know, in general, you know, as you know, or, you know, or you Google, TV is often room written and, mm-hmm. and really the only, in everything, the only thing that matters is story. Everything is service of story, service of story. But as we're moving into this more auditory age, that doesn't have to be the case anymore. And again, one of the things that I found really refreshing and enjoyable about your show is that it was one person's vision, one person's, one person's passion project and the camera's eye is your eye and it's following the things that you're interested yeah. in. And that allows us to have things like, I don't know if it was the act out of an episode or, or just a scene, but there's a, you know, the, you have these mini, of course, mini, like every show does, mini shows within the show. Yeah. And there's the Michael Rappaport, Katrina Bowden relationship. And he's a cop and she's a hooker and he's looking out for her, but it's complicated. Yeah. And, you know, the episode, it was eight or nine. Um, this is the perils of binge watching. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he follows her up to the room, hotel room with a, with a John. Yeah. And it's enormously tense. And we know their history. We know their relationship. But that's all that happens. Yeah. And I really appreciated that mm. because we are on the journey with these characters. You're piloting the ship. And so that's okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? In a way where if it was episode nine of 22, uh, if many people were in there working on it, there probably would have had to been a bigger um, uh, bow on that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the the other advantage that it gives me as sort of the storyteller um, is, you know, um, I can during the writing process I was allowed to experiment and fail, mm-hmm. and then just sort of get rid of full subplots. Whereas if I had mapped that out in the writers' room and we had committed, and mm-hmm. someone was off writing episode six, right be very hard to do. You know, you can see the whole thing laid out. And, you know, an interesting thing with the story is, like, there's almost, I think there's one character in the whole piece that doesn't have some form of payoff by the end of the season. Mm -hmm. Whether something they've mentioned gets paid off down the road or we're laying the pipe to set them up for season two. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that would have been hard for me to sort of uh, delegate or pass off or try to explain to some other writers what I was trying to do there because part of it is also you know w- when you enjoy writing the fun is what happens when your conscious mind c- 
kind of turns off. Those are the best moments. Those are the best moments. And you go on that ride. And my favorite moments in anything I've done are the stuff that did not appear on my outline. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, so uh, that would have been I I think that just would have been very difficult to do. In terms of the cast, we referred to it earlier. It's a spectacular cast across the board. How much of this was personal relationships that you've built up over the years? Um, you know, calls that you were able to make versus uh, the machinery of TNT and DreamWorks yeah. being able to, to, to call in some chits. Um, three, pe- three folks that I cast I knew before. Uh, Brian Dennehy and I had worked together years ago on a failed sitcom. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I, we did a sitcom for, I think it was ABC. or Oh, no, for NBC. Yeah. Which was uh, loosely based on the brothers McMullen, and she's the one. Uh-huh. It's called The Fighting Fitzgeralds, and he oh, played I the Patriarch. This. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, my brother and I did that show. So I knew Brian from that. Um, so Brian was an easy phone call uh, to make. Uh, also, Peter Garrity, mm-hmm. um, who most people know from The Wire, who plays he's, my dad. He was Judge Phelan on The yeah. Wire. Um, Peter and I, uh, he's been in three of my movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so Peter, that was, and we almost lost Peter because he had an injury to his back. Ah. So he had to drop out, and then we cast somebody else, and then he called up and said, I'm okay. Did you cast it yet? I said, we did, but we'll fix it. And we got Peter back in. That's terrific. Um Michael Rappaport and I acted together in a failed HBO pilot that was Doug Ellen's follow-up to Entourage. Oh, right. The, uh, uh, this is 40 or something? Uh, or 40, 40. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is 40 was the movie. Yeah, that was, yeah. It was called 40. Yeah. Um, and Michael and I got along great. He's a New York guy. I and mean, that was also one of the things I wanted yeah. to do was, you know, uh, you know, I've heard, you know, it's like it's tough to do Boston accents and New York accents. Yeah. Um, so I really wanted to try and find as many born and bred New Yorkers as I could so that I didn't have to have someone fudge. Because when you're fudging a New York accent next to folks who have real accents. It gets dicey. Yeah, it gets dicey. Yeah. Um, the difference between drama and comedy becomes uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the poorest border. Yeah. Big time. Um, so Michael and then, um, you know, I knew Kevin Corrigan. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Kevin's got without a, you know, it's it's. A shorter run his character has in our series, yes. as does... Uh, it's politely put yeah. it, yeah. Um, and Tim Hutton, too. So right. I was able to call in some favors there. But I think that, you know, my casting uh, folks, this woman named Laura Rosenthal, who I've been working with since my second movie, and um, Mary Beth Fox, they they found Carrie Bechet for me. Yeah. And they really, like, they know every off-Broadway actor in New York. Like, that is what they do. Yeah. And they find these people, like, you know, Keith Nobbs, who plays the part of Duffy. Uh-huh. And they just say, He's great. I, I don't know what part he should play. He needs to audition. So he came in and he read for five different parts. And then I was like, okay, I'm writing the part of Duffy, reworking it for him. Well, he's just alive on the screen. And you just, in every moment, I'm buying it. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, like the, another great moment. And this is the thing. It's, it's, it's tougher to sell this because what I'm saying, what I liked about the show are these quieter moments between the bigger picture. Yeah. You know, cops and robbers are there, but there's a moment when he has to, he, he gets some big news and uh, he says, I need a, do you have any beer? And he goes oh, to the, yeah, yeah. Uh, he walks all the way to the refrigerator, gets a beer, takes a big drink of beer. And the, the roommate says, get back in there. He says, I'm going. And, you know, this is a detour. Yeah from the plot but it defines the plot yeah. and you have room for that I you know I gotta give the credit to TNT for that yeah um, they left us alone and um, you know our pitch to them was I've never done television before you know I've only done you know my little movies 
I said, I want to hire my crew. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my DP, Will Rexer, my costume designer, Kat Thomas, Dina Goldman, who does our production This is like family at this point. All family. You know, and none of us have done television. So our thing was like, all right, we're given this crazy opportunity. Let's just make a 10-hour movie. Yeah. Approach that in the writing. Approach it in the filmmaking, in the casting. um, And, you know, in sort of like it doesn't have to just be – uh, you, you know, a plot trip. And like, let's have to be A to B to C. Yeah, yeah. Like, let's play with these character moments. And there's, you know, and we go off on some tangents. Um, nice thing is with television that yeah, you have the room to go a little deeper with yeah. some characters. Um, so We talked about, um, you know, how exciting TV can be now and the possibilities for TV now. And, you know, in the last few years, there were a lot of people saying that, you know, the, the, the last 10 years of TV are equivalent to the 70s in American filmmaking, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> This leaves out a period that you are very well familiar with, which is the 90s. Yeah. And I hope you don't mind going in the Wayback Machine no, no, briefly no, yeah. here. Yeah. But, you know, for listeners who maybe weren't aware of it or coming of age at the time, like I was, like Brothers McMullen comes out in January of 95 or early yeah. 95. I'm a senior in high school. We all go downtown Philadelphia to the Ritz Theater, the <laughs> Art House Theater, and we see this movie. And I'd yeah. seen Reservoir Dogs in that same theater a few months before. Yeah. And this was world-changing. Yeah. These were This was so exciting. Yeah. And it's funny because now, you know, anyone can make a movie with the, the iPad I have here on the table. But it didn't – obviously, we didn't have that ability then. But it also – I miss the 70s filmmaking. I didn't yeah. see Mean Streets until I was in college. Yep. These movies, even though they weren't about my life, it suddenly seemed like anyone could have keys to the, the kingdom. And that was, that was huge. Yep. And I can only imagine what that was like for you when suddenly these doors opened. You know, I I had the similar experience you did because at that when I make McMullen, I'm 25 years old. Yeah, um, I can remember I see Reservoir Dogs at the Angelica, uh-huh. and I can't believe it. I like I I've never seen anything like yeah. this. It is the most exciting time I've ever had in a theater. Period. That yeah. like blew my mind. And again, it was like, who's this guy? He worked in a video store. Holy crap! Like. We we can do this? It, it, there was this sense, and I don't know if people, kids still grew up with this, but for me there was a sense that you weren't allowed to do things or no one would show you how. Or you couldn't Google it, certainly. Yeah, you couldn't Google it. So. The idea that you could make movies was something yeah. nobody ever talked about. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I can remember when I, when I finally take my first film appreciation class, um, I had never given any thought to the fact that someone actually <laughs> wrote movies. Right. You know, like I just, it just, you never heard anybody talk about that. Right. Um, there were no podcasts. No. So no. obviously we were, it was a less enlightened time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then I can remember, you know, the, uh, Hal Hartley, okay. another Long Island guy, when I see Unbelievable Truth, I think then the next year it's Slacker. Linklet is Slacker. Yeah. And can we just pause for Hartley's early movies? So uh, underappreciated. Yeah, big time. Like a Trust and Amateur. And these yeah. are some of my Simple favorite men. movies of all time. Yeah, Simple if you're men. not familiar with those, go rent the. Or people don't rent movies I don't anymore. know how you get it. Yeah. Maybe it's yeah. streaming. But Probably. Just watch yeah, Simple yeah, Men. Wait so. to the part where Sonic Youth's cool thing comes in yeah. and then, then call us back. Yeah. Um, those were great. And those, you know, again, uh, there was also a great movie called Laws of Gravity, a uh-huh. Nick Gomez movie. So within, you know, those three years, let's say 92, 93, 94. Um, as a kid here in New York who wants to do this, I'm looking at these movies, and granted, Dogs was done for $2 million, but those other movies were done for like 50000 40000 mm-hmm. 30000 And that was the real eye-opener, that the idea that you could buy recanned film stock, you know, 16-millimeter film that was left over from music videos. Because you had to buy actual film. You, you had to buy, you, buy actual you film. You could not. I re-enrolled back in school for one class because the film would be cheaper 
if you had the wow. student discount. That's how expensive film was that you could re-enroll in a class. Yeah. Which still, the math would work out that that was cheaper. God. And what were you, so what were you doing those years? Were you, I was a production assistant. Okay. Um, so you were, you were interested in movies. You wanted to know about them. But uh, yeah, you, no, I was, when I leave, uh, I go to Hunter College right. up here on the east side, um, and I'm a film production major. Okay. So I leave school, and then I just like, I'm just writing screenplays. Okay. And again, you know, so this is like 91, 92. So I probably wrote five Reservoir Dog ripoff scripts. Terrific. Um, I, hope, I hope they're found someday. <laughs> I, I sent them out to every agent, producer, yeah. didn't get anywhere with them. And a lot of those movies were made. They we were made. Like, there yeah, were a lot yeah, of those A ton in the of them 90s. were. A ton of them were. So, um, so anyhow, where were we? So, anyhow, yeah, so seeing those movies inspired yeah. me. And it just, it just, it said to you, like, oh, wait, anybody can do this. And then I make that film and it goes nowhere. Um, it gets rejected from every film festival. I couldn't get an agent. My idea was I just wanted an agent. Yeah. I so thought it would just be the calling this card. This the calling card. Yeah. yeah. Because you made it. This was mine from your experience in your life. And it was, how much was it? 25 grand to get it in the can. At Crazy. the end of the day, 125. Okay. Um, and then, you know, we get lucky. We get into Sundance. And then when you're in Sundance, it's like. Um, what, the, what, where were you when you found out? What was that? What was that moment? Do you remember I was that? working as a PA and we came back from a shoot and. Uh, you know, you used to have like a fill out that thing of like the calls that came in. Yeah. So I get this, and it's Jeff Gilmore from the Sundance yeah. Film Festival, and I call the number, and he's like, "Hey, is this Ed Burns?" I'm like, "Yeah." He goes, uh, "So look, we got this. It was a VHS rough cut, mm-hmm. two hour rough cut of Brothers McMullen." So we've got this rough cut here. Have you finished the film? I lie. I say yes. Totally. He says, what's the running time now? Because, you know, I was a big Woody Allen fan. Woody Allen movies were always about 90 minutes. Yeah. I said 90 minutes. He goes, what scenes did you cut? I randomly name off five scenes. He goes, great, great. He goes, all right, you'll get the official call in a couple of weeks. <laughs> oh, my God. So then we get in. Yeah. And then I have about two months to raise money, to yeah. finish the film. And then transfer the 16 millimeter to get blown up to 35 millimeter. Not to mention cut 30 minutes. I cut 30 minutes scenes. out of it, yeah. Um, and I got lucky. They're uh, a company called Good Machine, mm-hmm. which produced it's all those Hal Hartley Ted movies. Hope. Ted Hope, exactly. Um, uh, and James Seamus. They mm-hmm. gave me two bits of great advice uh, that sort of changed my career. Uh, Ted, when we were trying to get the film down to 90 minutes, um, he kept saying he had two things. He goes, like, look, no one's ever walked out of a theater and said, you know, I really love that movie, but it was too short. That's a great point. Right? Great advice. He goes, you know, just cut the scene. And he goes, and if, if, it, if it really pains you to cut that scene, if you think it's that brilliant, you'll work it into your next script. Oh, that's even better advice. Any scene that I've ever cut out has never worked its way back into another script. No, but if you tell yourself that, you can make you, the you cut. Can, you can do it. You can and then, do you, it. Then, then you have the perspective yeah. they have later, and you yeah. realize why it had to go. And Seamus gave me good advice. He said, when you go to Sundance, you know, odds are we're not going to sell the movie. But that's your moment. You know, you're going to have those 10 days, those two weeks where you're going to be hot. And Hollywood, you know, being what it is, someone's going to want to buy your next script just mm-hmm. because they're caught up in the moment. I don't care what it is. Get another script done. And I had written basically what I thought was a funnier version of Brothers McMullen, yeah. this movie called She's the One, because yeah. I didn't think anybody would see Brothers McMullen. So that was going to be a real debut. That was going to be the yeah. real debut. But then what happens is they buy McMullen and Fox Searchlight. That was their first movie. They then buy She's the One as well. That's unbelievable. It so, was nuts. I mean, So from the moment of that first call, in your memory now, does it all seem like one long, lucky ride? of, Or were there, from that moment of you get that call through the... the release of McMullen and the success of it that or, or is, is it broken up more no that that's just a crazy blur you know because you know I'm, I'm a working class kid 
I'm making eighteen thousand dollars as a PA, fetching coffee, you know, and, and we do interviews with you know movie makers yeah. and actors. Then I'm, you know, I'm flown first class out to Los Angeles. They put you up in the Chateau Marmont. Yeah. You get driven onto the lot. You're meeting with the head of the studio. I mean, yeah. it's surreal, surreal stuff. Um, I think the best thing that happened to me, and it's kind of what I've tried to do throughout my whole career, is I did not get to really focus on or enjoy the release of Brothers McMullen because they greenlit She's the One. So I'm deep into pre-production and your casting and rewriting yeah. and location scouting. So the, what happens with the release of the movie, you know, yes, I'm, I'm aware of it, but it isn't like every day I'm waking up like, how did we do? Patting yourself on the back. Any of that stuff because yeah, you're, you're just locked in. So like that is kind of, I recognize that. And again, I was 27. So maybe if you were 22, you know, 27, you just, you know. Uh, maybe you can start a, to see your life a little a, bit. A little 22, bit. you can't. You can't. So I just sort of knew like, Oh wait, that was that was healthy. Like being busy and working is a good. That's a good place to be. That seems stay to focused f- there. That seems to have fueled you because you have yeah. always been busy. You've yeah. always been working. Um, you you mentioned the advice Spielberg gave you. You mentioned um, Scorsese. You mentioned Woody Allen. Did you get a chance to talk to your other idols early on in your career? Did, did you cross paths with any of these guys? Uh, I, I did. You know, that was the other sort of lucky thing about you know. When I got into the business with McMullen, because that film was so successful, you know, I got to cut the line. Mm-hmm. You know, you all of a sudden were, you know, at parties or at these events where you're getting to meet Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and like, on, and lucky, you know, with Private Ryan getting cast in that movie. I, on that set, I get the greatest filmmaking role model you could ever have yeah. in Steven, but then also the greatest acting role model you could ever have. There's nobody more professional mm-hmm. than Tom. There's nobody nicer on a set. Nobody more prepared. The way he treats collaborative. Everyone. I mean, that was like, oh, okay, that's that's how movie stars behave. All right. And I was like, and I looking back, that was relatively early in yeah, your career. It's hard yeah. to remember that. He was forty. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have to mention this also coming from a TV perspective. Brothers McMullen, great film for many reasons. You cast Connie Britton. Yeah. The beginning of her career. Yeah. How did did you know her? How did you find her? All right. So the Connie Britton story is a great story. Oh, thank uh, goodness. And I only recently found out the other side of the story that's connected to Ed Norton. I'm already all in on this story. It's a good story, yeah. So, um, for a couple of funny things. So, you know, we, I don't, you know, I've never auditioned an actor. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to do this. <laughs> yeah. um, and we're, we're trying to find someone to play the part of Molly. All right. Bunch of actresses come in and I'm convinced that the script is terrible. It has to be rewritten because the scene isn't working. Okay. Connie Britton comes in um, and all of a sudden, I was like, oh, wait, that scene's actually emotional, yeah. and I'm moved, and this is incredible. Um, so I tell Connie, you know, the, the, uh, you know you're, you're fantastic. We yeah. want you in the movie, blah, blah, blah. Here's the deal. Uh, we can't pay you anything. Uh, we will feed you. You have to do your own hair and makeup, wear your own clothes, um, and when we can, we will get you to set if it's not in Manhattan. This is a glamorous pitch right, right now. Yeah. This is the big time. Um, and I only have enough money to shoot a couple of days, but I think, you know, we can get the film done eventually. That's the pitch I give her. And you didn't even say what, what you would feed her, I noticed. No. That, that you sort of yada yada that <laughs> Yeah, part. yeah. And it, basically it was pizza. Okay. And that was it. <laughs> um, so she had never been in front of a camera before. Wow. She had never done anything. You know, she's in New York doing theater. Like, yeah. You know. Um, so I think, she, yeah, she goes to Dartmouth. I, I think Ed Norton went there. I think they were friends from college. So she runs into Ed on the street. She says, 
I just got offered this movie. It's no money. I, you know, I don't know if this guy knows what the hell yeah. he's doing. And Norton says to her, you're crazy. That's why we're here in New York for these opportunities. Like, who cares? Like, you have to go for this. Just wow. go for it. So Connie goes for it, does the movie. We go to Sundance. Um, and Connie now has a career. Yeah. She goes into audition for a part in a movie called Primal Fear. Yeah. She reads the script. She calls up Ed and says, hey, has your agent told you about this script, Primal Fear? Yeah. Because you would be great in it. He says, no, let me call my agent right now. Calls the agent. Ed Norton gets Primal Fear off of Connie Britton's phone call. So we have you to thank for two major stars of our time that you should take credit yeah, for those. So, you know well i you know i mean i've spoken ahead about it. i was like i gotta thank you yeah for giving us for convincing connie too because he was absolutely on the fence i hope he was equally appreciative of you i only hope i i, I think he was okay I think good. that's was. important yeah. yeah um the thing about she's the one that we have to discuss um is this is you know you said you've, you've listened to our podcast before yeah. One of the defining aspects of my friendship with with Chris has always been uh, Walls, the Tom Petty song oh, really? that he wrote for your movie. Uh, we fell in love with that song when we met. You know, we met in summer of '96, right. and uh, oh, that's, that, yeah, that, that song was everywhere yeah. on MTV. Yeah. Lindsey Buckingham's backing vocals on that caused that's me right. to go deep down a rabbit hole of obsession with Lindsey Buckingham, which led to me getting to meet him on the podcast. So I'm giving you credit wow. for this. Wow. So. I know there are a lot of stories to be told about that movie. I need to know how you got Tom Petty to write a soundtrack to your movie. All right. So that's, you know, so, I mean, it was a nutty ride in the beginning, yeah. right? I mean, you must be getting a lot of phone calls. I mean, There's stuff was, going on. It was crazy. So that, um, all right, so we finished She's the One. And, uh, you know, at the end of Brothers McMullen, Brothers McMullen had all of this instrumental, traditional mm-hmm. Irish folk music. Uh, movies had started to put pop songs over the tail credits, and those songs were turning into hits. Yeah. So Fox says, we need a pop song at the end of McMullen. The, the guy who did the music, a guy named Seamus Egan from McMullen, he gave me all of that music for free. I even And when we went to Sundance when I had no money and couldn't really, you know. So basically, he did the right thing by me. I said, look, you I got to- You gave him a lot of pizza. I gave him a lot of fair. pizza. <laughs> He's still full. I, um, I said, said I got to just clear it with him. Like, let's- Find someone that he likes. Mm-hmm. So he gave me, a, you know, uh, two people that he liked. One of them, the first one was Sarah McLaughlin. So I go to Fox. What about Sarah McLaughlin? They said, great. We'll go. We know her manager will approach okay. her. Sarah McLaughlin sees the movie. They tell her, can you write a song for the tail credits? She hears the instrumental song that's over that. And she goes, well, why don't I just write lyrics to that and sing over that? All right. And she does that and she gets a top 10 hit. So Seamus Egan, who does the movie... Wait, which, was, which song was that? I Will Remember You. Of course. Yeah, right? <laughs> so how nuts is that? So this, this, Seamus course. Egan, this traditional Irish folk musician who basically was just playing in Irish bars, gets a co-writing credit with Sarah McLaughlin, and I'm sure is, you know... That buys a lot of pizza. He's got a house in upstate New York, I'm sure, because it buys a lot of pizza. Yeah. yeah. So Fox now, that they want to do that for She's the One. Right. And... Uh, um, the, uh, one of the guys in the Fox Music Department was friends with Tom's manager. They sent Tom the movie uh, and said, "Would you write a? Would you consider writing a song for the tail credits?" He watches the movie. He says, "I love it. Great. I'll write a song." So I get the call. You need to fly out to L.A. and go meet with Tom Petty. I've been waiting my whole life for that right? call. That's, right. so that's, so that's pretty good. It. I mean, this is nuts. So then I go to his house. It's me and Tom. 
And we talk for about five minutes. Yeah. And he goes, oh, so do you want to hear the song? I was like, yeah, great. I think he's going to like put on a cassette or something. Yeah. We go into like the music room, pulls out his guitar, plugs it into an amp. We're sitting like this. And then he plays for me and sings me walls. Wow. I says, what do you think? What? Can I just ask you, what face do you make during that? Because I, it's a little it's intimate. It's like this. You know, like the, like the smile, <laughs> yeah. the, like the, just the dumb, frozen smile on your face. You just can't move anything. <laughs> you can't move anything. You're avoiding eye contact because that's just kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, it's because it's a love song. It's about your heart. <laughs> so, um, and what do you say? That you, you can't be like, So he what? says, what do you think? You I'm like, you're fucking Tom Petty. What do you think I think? It's fucking awesome. <laughs> you know? Um, I said, that's great. That's great. He goes, well, I want you to hear another one. Um, and then he plays Angel Dream. Yeah. Which is a beauty. Yeah. I'm like, oh, wow, that's, that's really great, too. He goes, well, which one? I said, oh, I don't, I don't know. He goes, well, I have one more for you. Oh, no. Um, and I'm spacing on the name of the third one. Yeah. He plays all three. And I said, look, I got a crazy idea. Since you have these three songs, I don't, it's, it, you only have balls like this when you're 27. Yeah. I said, you know, The Graduate is one of my favorite films. And, you know, I've always loved the way that Mike Nichols took, you know, the Simon and Garfunkel songs and then from the songs extracted the melody and then mm-hmm. used that as the score. Mm-hmm. I said, would, would you ever have any interest in that? And he's like, oh, that's a cool idea. Unbelievable. Now, yeah. are, you, are you just high on jet lag at this point? Is that why I mean, you I must it? be. I must be. That's... You know? Um, and th- so then, then from there, you know, originally it's going to be three songs and the score. So then, then the heartbreakers come in. <laughs> And all the greatest guys. Were they all in the closet in the back? Just they waiting. were just they in were the back. Yeah, waiting. Like, waiting. Oh, What's he going to say? <laughs> I hope this twenty-seven-year-old kid gives us the thumbs up. <laughs> um, we go into the studio. They do the score, and then Fox is talking about, well, what do we do for the soundtrack? And then Tom was like, well, I don't want anybody else on it. So, like, I have a couple of uh, songs left over from uh, the previous album. I think yeah. Wildflowers. What was yeah. it called? So there were a couple of songs there, and then he had another one. He covered a Beck song, and all of a sudden, there's a Tom Petty score and soundtrack for that movie. I feel like th- what's amazing about this is that you had the best possible experience, yeah. like this, the dream experience. And then, you know, we talked about this at the beginning of our conversation, the the frustrations of the industry came came later. Yeah. How do you feel about the the balance of that? Because clearly things have worked out yeah. and you've done, we could talk about this separately, you've, you self-generate and that's kind of what you have to yeah. do. You make your own stuff. But you had this... Cinderella run of a couple of years and then you know people want you to stay in your lane you're writing scripts yep. and you can't get them made and Tom Petty's not returning your phone calls yep. anymore uh, true. is it true <laughs> let's reach out to him um, that's an, it's an interesting dynamic yeah. but you, you've persevered through it you know I think um, there are very few people in the business um, who, who get to ride on top the whole run mm-hmm. you know I have the, that those two films, then I get cast in Private Ryan and within three years, and it's like, well, this business is fantastic. I love it. It's you easy. Know? It's easy. Um, I, after Ryan, you know, my manager says, okay, we got to be careful with what we follow that movie up with. Mm-hmm. You know, like, that's a big part. We got to make sure it's the right next thing. Mm-hmm. And after that, you know, my, my team, your agents and your managers say like, you know, let's, let's just put a pin in the indie filmmaking career for now. Let's pursue this acting thing yeah. coming off of the heels of Ryan. So I moved to LA and uh, we're waiting for the next right script. And that script comes. Uh, it doesn't come for a year and a half, mm-hmm. um, which is a long time not to be doing anything yeah. when you're at that moment. Um, and, but, when, and when you're clearly a kind of person who needs to work yeah, and likes to work. Yeah. Um, 
but this script on paper seemed like a, a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's me and De Niro. I play a fire marshal. He's my partner. He's mm-hmm. a homicide detective. He gets killed halfway through. I avenge his death. Mm-hmm. The movie was called 15 Minutes. Yeah. Nobody saw it. I remember this movie. Terrible reviews. It bombs. And then all of a sudden, I go into a little bit of a panic. Yeah. Um, because uh, I, you know, I haven't worked in three years. So then I make m- probably my favorite film of mine, a movie called Sidewalks of New York, mm-hmm. which did, you know, it did decent business, but it didn't set the world on fire. Um, but then, so that's, I don't know what that is. Oh, yeah, that's 01. Mm-hmm. So then I go through a five-year stretch probably where the acting choices I make don't work. You know, the movie called Confidence, which I loved with yeah. Dustin Hoffman. Just, nobody saw it. A romantic comedy with Angelina Jolie, which we won't mention. Nobody saw that one. Um, and then there, my, there, there are worse choices to make. I, I mean, it was a fun time. Yeah. You know, a uh, good time on set. Uh, and then there was a bunch of, um, uh, you know, my the, the movies I made that just didn't work, quite honestly. You know, for a number of different reasons. And then you wake up and, you know, your career is essentially over. You know, you're not getting the phone calls as an actor. Um, and uh, again, I'm trying to get that, you know, net, my other, my third Hell's Kitchen story made. Yeah. And uh, I think it's a really good script. And we need 12 million. Okay, we need 10 million. Okay, we can do it for two. Yeah. And we can't get two. God. Um, and that was a real, that, you know, that's scary. Yeah. To come from, you know, there's some of these great stories we're telling about early in the career. But it's it's sort of interesting though because I feel like and I've I've heard this from other actors you're living there's essentially two careers happening on top of each other there's mm. the career that you're actually doing where you're writing work and you're getting better and you're changing and you're having your life and you're you know you're on, having fun with Angie on set yep. which I I hope you can give me more details about either on the record or uh, no she's just just uh, you know just terrific fun to work with okay fair <laughs> enough. Um, but then there's the, the, the second career, which is in the public perception and the industry perception, which is riding above all of it. So yeah. you are moving forward because it's your life and your career. Yeah. But the ups and downs that happen with movies that you've been done with for, you know, in the case of an acting job, you've been done with for a year. Yeah. Uh, that, that plays a rather – an unfairly large part in how – in what you get to do next. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's tough. I think that's why um, – uh, you know, it's, it's a tough life for actors. Yeah. And it's why, you know, any time – I'm casting, uh, you know, a, a lot of times a producer or an agent or someone will say to you, oh, no, 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 you know, like they, they, they can't do that. And I'm like, w- w- why do you think they can't do that? Ten years ago, this guy was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And look at that film. He was great. Do you think he forgot how to act? Yeah. You know, if you look at the resume, it's a series of tough breaks. And now he's forced to do schlocky work because yeah. you've got to pay your bills. That's right. You don't suddenly become less talented. It's a job. It's I mean, a job. Yeah. You just take those jobs. And for a lot of actors, um, you know, that, that, that all of a sudden that becomes the reputation. But then you'll see these great stories of when someone is given a chance, again, to do something great. It's like, hey, we, we forgot how great the, he is. The biggest one is Travolta and Pulp Fiction. Absolutely. But there's a hundred more every 100 year. A hundred cases like that. Um, and, and to bring things full circle, I mean, the actors we're talking about, like like, like Dennehy and, and Rappaport and, and Corrigan, these guys are just good no matter yeah. what. They're always good. And in a way, you know, th- th- playing the long game has worked out for them yeah. because pe- they've always been good. They're consistently good. And they haven't had to... I mean, Dennehy's a different example because he's a you know brilliant stage actor yeah. and is of a different generation. But... There's something to be said for playing the career and not the moment, if you're able to focus on that. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I think that you know the 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 guys who um, played the long game mm. played the long game because they actually they, they got into it for all the right reasons. Mm-hmm. 
They did it because they love it. Um, they recognize that all careers are ebbs and flows, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and you've you've got you've also got to have thick skin. You got to you got to weather those tough storms. Um, and those guys have done it, and that's why I think when they show up, you have folks who who not only like appreciate the job, they like love the opportunity mm-hmm. to you know, and which is what I I try to encourage on the set to like they love the opportunity to collaborate like. You're not here to just spit out these lines. Like you're here to like embody this character, have some fun with it. Tell me what you want to do, mm-hmm. um, and you know, hopefully, I'm giving them some good red meat to chew on. Yeah, you know. So I think about this all the time, and I try to talk about it. Like, no one's going to be pouring out any liquor for actors in general. No one has a lot of sympathy yeah. for people who are you know good-looking stars. But it's a very powerless profession. You know, yeah. you're really at the whims of the material given to you, the opportunities given to you, and you know, I, I can only imagine that it helps that you actually like doing it, but the fact that you can write and that you do write has got to be um, enormous amount of support going forward. And, you know, just in, in your daily life, because you're not totally at the whims of other people. Worst case, you just write it for yourself. Yeah. Oh, if I was sitting at home, yeah, like waiting for the phone to ring, yeah, that would be uh, an intolerable existence. Yeah, you know, the the fact that you know every day, like this morning, you know, I get to the office at ten o'clock and I know. All right, 10 to 12 is the window I had today. I'm like, I'm writing, you know, because like, I know something good will come from that. You know, uh, it'll just be good for my head so that I'm not thinking about. Can you focus? Do you have to, like, distract yourself? Do you have to turn off the Internet? Do you oh, no, to... I, no I, do, I do that. I, I could turn okay. off the Wi-Fi. I'm purely asking for advice. Now. Yeah, 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 that's what you have. Just turn, like, turn off the Wi-Fi, and I'll do just, like, all right, 45 minutes. Yeah. Like, let's say it's 5.15, and uh-huh. I know I have to leave at 6, uh-huh. and, I, and I've been procrastinating all day. Yeah. You'll feel so good if you just turn the Wi-Fi off and just say, all right, I can do 45. It's really true. It's really true, because otherwise, that 45 minutes, you could wad up and throw away. Yeah. So easily. Yeah. And, m- and the 45, you'll get some good stuff out of it, and yeah. then the crazy thing happens is you look up, and it's 7.15. Yeah. And now you're in trouble. You're totally in trouble, but you feel good. <laughs> you feel good. And whoever is angry at you for being late will understand, because you'll be in such a better mood. Yeah, yeah. So what excites you right now as a writer, as a filmmaker, as an actor? You had this great opportunity to yep. make 10 episodes of this show. I would imagine you'd like to make more. I would kill to make more. <laughs> okay. I mean, really would. But just because there, there is so much that, um, that – so much pipe that I laid mm-hmm. that is setting up season two and season three. You, built, mean, a, you built a world here. built a world, yeah. Um, and it was fun. I mean, you know, it, what was nice is – all of the research I did, you know, it's like Scorsese has that line about, you know, you have to make your obsessions the audience's obsessions. Mm-hmm. Like, these are the, the kinds of stories and characters, both fictional and nonfiction, that I've been obsessed with. Um, so the fact that I can just like anything I pick up that I read for fun yeah. potentially has something great that will inspire another scene or another character. Yeah. That's a good place to be in. Um so we, we were talking about this right before we started rolling, but this is the excitement and potential of TV, but also at this exact moment, the frustration of it, which yeah. is you've made this 10-hour movie that is really enjoyable and I think could potentially find a much bigger audience. Yeah. Um, but you know the economics aren't quite where we need to be so that they can say, Eddie, we're funding you know three yeah. seasons of this epic tale because we know what we have in the can for the future and how yeah. we can market it. It's, not, it's still ad-dependent. It's not quite there yet. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, we have a little bit of an advantage because TNT owns the show. You know, they financed it, so that that these, does these, help us. These things matter, yeah. You know, they keep talking about, um, you know, AMC and Breaking Bad and Mad Men, and you've got to think long-term 
Um, so, you know, our fingers are crossed that the economics will work out. Uh, that said, you know, if they don't, um, you know, I'm busy working on a feature now that sort of, like I said, that Bible is 500 pages yeah. long. I extracted um, a little something from there that uh, that I'm working on for a feature now. Interesting. Well, there are a lot of, there's a lot to play with in that world. Yeah. And, you, you know, you a little bit ago you said you likened what you're doing to a, a crime writer and some of our greatest crime writers they essentially just write different versions of the same yeah. story in the world yeah. you know like there's a writer i like called alan first who's a long island guy also oh, really? and all of his books are set between uh 1939 and 1944 in europe like just in those six years huh. during world war ii everyone but he's never run out of topics yeah. you know and it, when you have that rich text then you can keep playing with it yeah and, you know, for me, it's fun. I mean, the, the the thing that I most enjoyed about writing this was two things. One, writing and actually knowing that I was going to get to shoot it. That must have been exhilarating. Because when that you're an indie been... film guy, you you never know that. Yeah. You know, you write. You write on spec. You hope to attract a cast. Then you hope to raise the money. So that was just a blast. And then not having to write with a budget in mind. Yeah. Being able to know, okay, you know, the car is going to blow up. We can afford to blow up the car or whatever it might be, you know? No spoilers. Um, oh, yeah. but, a, but a car does blow up. A car does blow up. If you've seen the trailer, you've seen the car blow up. Okay, fair enough. Um, the, um, we don't know who's in the car. We don't know. We don't know. Uh, then the, the other thing is like having done, you know, so many contemporary sort of uh, character-driven mm-hmm. sort of, uh, you know, these rom-coms, it was so much fun to not go anywhere near that stuff mm-hmm. and to sort of, let's just say, ra- you know, play with bigger stakes mm-hmm. um, so that uh, I just got so high from that experience that I I had to just continue it. So, um, you know, if Public Morals doesn't go season two, you will see, um, you know, this other New York story. I like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So final question for you. 27-year-old Eddie is 27 in 2015. Right. Uh, you still love movies? Maybe you've watched Mad Men, these other things. Are you pivoting to TV? Where where do you think where do you think you're going to get that creative fix? Uh, you know, it's a it's a tough question because uh, you know, as you've talked about with some other guests, you know, like there is too much TV right now. Yeah, you know, there's there's a glut of this stuff. The good news is that there's still a lot of buyers. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, um, in the indie film world. Uh, okay, so so in TV there's a lot of buyers. So let's say you can write the thing and you might get an opportunity to make it. Mm-hmm. But how are you going to find the audience? Yeah, and that's true of in the indie film world now because you know the the, the barrier to entry is non-existent because you can make a movie for five thousand dollars. You can shoot it on your iPhone yep. and it's going to look pretty good. But how are you going to find the audience? Yeah. Um, uh, so I you know I I don't really know. I think it really has to. It's, it's down to the story you want to tell. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some stories that I think are better served in that, you know, like almost like the difference between a short story and sort of a big novel. You right. know, like f- feature films are a little bit more of the short story when compared to the 10 hour or 12 hour yeah. story you can tell that, that you know, like you, if you look at something like The Wire, mm-hmm. um, you know, another one of the all time greats. Like that, that that's a big sprawling novel. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were going to make the feature film of the novel, you basically it would be the story of McNulty and you know and, and what's going on with him. Yeah, um, and, and that's a it's a story. It's, it's a, a story. it's a worthwhile story, yeah. but it's in many ways to my you know it's a less rewarding yeah. story. But but to, actually, I think the most interesting thing about about your your answer there is twenty seven year old you is sort of a platform agnostic. 
mm, you yeah. know, you're you're actually more empowered because you you have stories, and then you can try and place them in the right place. Whereas a previous generation, you know, in 1993, 1994, someone said, okay, you can make Brothers McMullen as an indie film the way you want to make it, or, or a sitcom, or a sitcom with a laugh <laughs> yeah, track, yeah, 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 and you yeah. got to move to Burbank and get moving yeah, on it. Yeah, that's not really a choice. No. And you know, I mean. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see where TV goes with streaming and, um, you know, like uh, the success or we'll see how successful it is when it comes to HBO. But um, the Vimeo, the show that was on Vimeo, mm-hmm. um, uh, High Times. High Maintenance. It? High Maintenance. Yeah. Which was great. And yeah. like this kind of experimental form, you know, th- six minute episode. Perfect 12. in that form, I yeah. think. Um, and now it's being upstreamed HBO. Yeah. So it's, you know, I mean, the thing is. If you love doing this and you need to do it, you will figure it out. If you're doing it because you're only looking to monetize it mm-hmm. and become rich and famous, then forget about it because it's too freaking hard. What if you're you know? only doing it to meet Tom Petty? Um, well, then we got to put our heads together and figure out yeah, well, what that right project is. <laughs> that makes sense you know? to me. Um, Eddie Burns, I cannot thank you enough for sitting hey, down and you, talking man. with me. Um, Public Morals on TNT. Uh, I'm sure it's all available on demand, but the... Season finale airs, or most of it's available on demand. Yeah, so uh, so I should say that, that uh, this is one thing that finally I will say, like if you like, you can finally watch it the way you should watch it. Yes, you can go to iTunes and get the full season. That's right. starting tonight, I guess, um, and then on demand. You know, some providers like Comcast, yeah, has all ten episodes available, and they're giving it a big push. And then other providers, unfortunately, like if you have Time Warner for whatever reason. You you're only back one episode. So yeah. I don't I don't I don't really know enough about how those decisions are made. Yeah, and I don't want to piss those people off. But don't piss them off okay. <laughs> because I, just, I want to <laughs> yeah. be able to watch some TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's well worth checking out. The finale airs uh, Tuesday, October twentieth. I yeah. uh, hope you get to make more and come talk to me again. Thank you, man. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes or. Go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.